This podcast was recorded on July 23rd, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau, today. Hey, hey. And we are kicking off a new series here at The Sherman Show that we're going to do over the next few podcasts called the CIO Series. What we want to do is delve into the minds of various chief investment officers around the industry, some with different experiences in the RIA community, some in the fund management community, some in the investment management industry. And the idea is to really dig a little bit deeper into these chief heads of the investment process and how different their roles may be and how they provide guidance to their clients. So with all that being said, with us today is our first guest on the CIO series, Wayne Wicker. Welcome, Wayne. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Wayne is a senior vice president and the chief investment officer for Vantage Point Investment Advisors. He also works with ICMARC, a mouthful to say. We'll let him delve into what that all means. He's the head of the investment division there. He's been there over 15 years. And so welcome to the Sherman Show, Wayne. That's great. Thanks. So, Wayne, let's start with that mouthful acronym that I said, IC. M-A-R-C. I have to always look at the paper. I, I get the YMCA kind of feeling when I start to say it. So what is the I-C-M-A-R-C? Well, you get an A for getting that entire acronym. In. It's an International City Managers Retirement Corporation. We were founded by the Ford Foundation well over 40 years ago. And we were originally focused exclusively on helping city managers and the portability problem they had on their defined contribution plan. And so over that 40-year period of time, we've grown dramatically. We've broadened out our mission-based statement, and we tend to have an exclusive focus on defined contribution plans and helping individuals plan for security retirement. Okay. Well, that's great. It's very helpful in this day and age. Uh, A lot of people need help doing that, so uh, kudos to being able to do that. So how did you get in the investment business? Give us a little bit way of your background from high school on. What led you down the path to working in the investment industry? So I, unlike some folks who kind of are kind of confused as to what they want to do when they go to college, from an early age, I had a pretty good idea that the investment management business was somewhat intriguing and something that I really wanted to be involved in. My parents were both musicians, and they didn't know anything about the investment management business. And so one day I had come home and asked my uh, dad about what stocks were. My dad did not have a clue, but we were fortunate enough to have an old school broker who was a good friend of my family. Usually when you use the phrase old school broker, that doesn't connote a positive experience with Uh, a lot of folks. Well, this is somewhat nostalgic, and we went down to his offices. It was an old regional firm out of San Francisco called Burr Wilson and Company. They still had ticker tapes back then. That's how old I am. (laughs) Most people probably don't know what a ticker tape is. Yeah, and this guy could read these ticker tapes very well, and he kind of took me under his wing. I was probably in seventh or eighth grade at the time. I'd made a lot of money pretty industrious with mowing lawns and other things. And I had about $1,000 to invest and gave me a couple of different annual reports, one for Boeing and one for Pacific Car and Foundry, PACAR. And 
told me to choose one after reading these things. I came up with Boeing, and that was the beginning of what turned out to be a pretty interesting few years prior to college. I actually made enough money working with this gentleman to pay for the majority of my college through investment management. It's impressive from mowing lawns to turn it into a college education. Pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. But by the way, I never learned anything about risk-adjusted returns until I got into <laughs> business school. So sometimes you're better lucky than good, I yeah. guess. Right? Well, fair enough. <laughs> so your parents were musicians. What did they play? So my father was well-regarded all along the West Coast as a woodwind specialist, played with every big-name entertainer you can imagine. My mom was actually an opera singer, came out from the Chicago met and moved out with my father to the Pacific Northwest. And so it was a pretty musical environment I lived through. So do you play any instruments or sing? I play no instruments and I do not sing. So that's probably a good thing, though, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty good at playing the radio. That's about it, you know. So uh, we had to find our niche along the way. Right, right? exactly. So you paid your way through school, learned about risk-adjusted returns in college. What was your first kind of career or at least job coming out of university? So I knew that most business schools wanted you to have a little bit of work experience beforehand. So I had the opportunity of all places to go to work for Boeing. And I worked on their defense side of the business for a couple of years before going back to business school. And uh, I think that the benefit of that experience was I got to see how a large industrial manufacturing operation worked. I was involved in the development of the cruise missile project, which is antiquated technology today, but it was cutting edge at the time. And it was a really good introduction to how corporate America works, especially with the government. So. Yeah, there is a huge interdependence. We, we sometimes forget that these days, that some of the best innovations or some of the things that are very critical in our life came from that public sector. I think of Bell Labs and, and Lawrence Livermore and, and those areas which have led to just massive advancements in technology and, and really things that are critical in our life today. Yeah, everything kind of bleeds into that from some of those innovative inventions. These days, we don't seem to be investing as much in the public sector to have that hybrid side. There's a heavy reliance on the private sector to to do development. And it's kind of that pool of government versus the private sector and capital. How do you feel about the inner workings there, especially as someone who kind of grew up, you know, seeing how great that relationship can be? Yeah, I think that the world's just kind of changed a little bit today. And the economics and how everybody is trying to make sure that they are being most efficient in terms of productivity, it's just kind of changed the way the metrics work for a lot of folks. And I think today we're probably seeing more innovation than we've seen for a long, long time, but it's probably coming through slightly different channels today, I think. But it's always the inner workings of the human spirit. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. As long as we keep innovating. (laughs) I know sometimes from a macro perspective, we're thought of as being too dire. You know, you're just looking at charts and you're looking at trends. And that thing that's most difficult to quantify is that innovative spirit and essentially what I call the human capital component. Right. So you started at Boeing. I have on here with some of the research Sam did that you're a portfolio manager on the equity side for a while. How does that transition work from working in, like you said, developing cruise missiles or working on those projects to selecting stocks, being a portfolio manager, integrating these risk management techniques you learn. Boy, Jeff, my career didn't take a straight line out of business school. My first real job was a great job, was more on the pension fund side where I was involved at Dayton Hudson Corporation. You'd know it today as Target Corporation. And I got the opportunity to ultimately, uh, over a 10-year period of time, be in charge of both the pension fund, the savings plan, as well as their foundation. And this was a group of folks that on that investment committee that were very innovative. And they allowed me to do a lot of things that probably were 
pretty unique back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. We were investing in timberland in New Zealand. We were doing private equity back when nobody was doing private equity. We were doing lots of things in the secondary market. We did a lot of derivatives overlays. And so it gave me a really great background over a 10-year period of time. And I think that's where I really became much more appreciative of risk-adjusted returns and the opportunity actually to deviate from the herd in order to take calculated risks that are going to actually pay off. And so that was a really good background for the next couple of rules I had, which was then to become the number two person who was the investment strategist at Howard Hughes Medical Institute, another under-the-radar type of endowment. Uh, at the time, it was the second largest endowment in the world, second to Burroughs Welcome over in the UK. And they were doing some really exciting work with their investigators on cutting edge medical developments. And so the endowment there was to support all that work. And my role there was to help not only develop the strategy for the endowment, but also to oversee the combination of internal management as well as external sub-advisors that we did. It was 100% internal when I got there, and the CIO wanted to go 50-50 internal, external to diversify the risks associated with that. And so it was a really fun job that ultimately, to your point, got me to uh, a portfolio manager role on a growth equity firm up in Boston that was a wholly owned subsidiary of PIMCO, ultimately Allianz. Oh, Allianz, okay. So from that perspective, how does one go from achieving all that breadth across all these sectors of the market to become, let's say, I don't want to dismiss what you did being, I'm going to say narrowly focused on large cap growth equities, but how does one think about that and the experiences you learn from researching New Zealand timber, doing derivative overlays to going back to that traditional stock picking in the large cap growth space? The way you, I guess, position that, it's kind of like thinking about a triangle. I started at the bottom where I had a lot of breadth and then kind of went more narrow. And I think what was helpful for having all that background was that I really did appreciate sitting on both sides of the table there, both as a plan sponsor and then ultimately as a portfolio manager reporting to a lot of plan sponsors. And I think that the breadth of different asset classes that I had the opportunity to gain exposure to ultimately really helped me in understanding individual companies that we were either considering investing in or ultimately made commitments to. And from a valuation perspective or from looking at balance sheets, I thought a lot of the training I got in some of these other roles really positioned you well to first as an analyst and as well as a PM, have some of the maybe confidence to make some of those challenging decisions when the trader walks in and says, hey, your number three position just missed the number. It's down 5%. What do you want to do? So I don't think anything can really make up for the experiences of either mistakes or victories that you had in other parts of your career to make up for that. Yeah, that's the most difficult thing is on that on the fly, on the spot kind of commitment of what are you going to do? Yeah. And by the way, I don't go to a uh, client relations book to see on the page 28 where it says sell discipline. That's not the manual for doing that when you're in the heat of the battle there, right? That's right. And uh, <laughs> yes, that's why there's a good compensation package, hopefully along with it. Yeah. It's for that risk and the stress that one takes. So, okay, you went from the breadth to the focused area. And then you've had some roles elsewhere as well. What have you learned along the ways in doing those other roles as your first CIO role? before this position you currently have? Well, I think that there were some transitions along the way. And there were certain periods in my career where I kind of thought making a move into this new role 
And I'm not 100% sure this is really the direction I should be going. Because in every role that you have, there are some really exciting things that you get to do. But then there's also the other side of things that you don't really like to do. And I think that one of the things that was thrilling about my role as a PM and as an allocator at maybe Target Corporation was the opportunity to really dig deep into opportunities and identify certain investments that were probably really, really intriguing or not. And then you dismiss them after doing the due diligence. I think that when you take those experiences and go to more of a CIO role, lots of guys do it differently. And you talk to lots of people that are looking at their roles in a multitude of ways. But I think that the way I tend to look at that is that building a partnership with a team of folks where you're the CIO really means more from a hierarchy standpoint that you're the senior partner. And so what was a bit of a challenge for me, it was to make that transition from being on the front line every day, meeting with company managements and making decisions on either adding, lightening up, selling positions in the portfolio to maybe being one step removed and having other guys doing that. And I was more in a, a management capacity to a certain extent. And, and that just takes some thing. time. I think that's one of the hardest things in this business, the transition, and actually relinquishing that control over each step of the process, relying on your team and knowing that you've instilled either the leadership within them or also just hired the right people that can do that on their behalf. And sometimes you have to be a little more hands-off, too, as you go into that higher level of role. Well, I've found that, you know, in all the experiences we all have in our careers, one of the things I think is most valuable as you have a few different jobs is along the way you either have direct supervisors or somebody else in the organization, you say, Boy, you know, if I ever get to that role in my career, I'm definitely going to do things the same way this person did it, or I'm definitely never going to do it the way that person did it. And so you try to take some of those pluses and minuses and actually do position them to build the culture that you think is going to be most successful. And so I think you're right, Jeff. I think that that seems to be a real challenge for folks in their first CIO role to make that positioning change and trying to develop the style and the culture that they think is going to be most successful. Yeah. Well, you'd mentioned, too, assessing intriguing opportunities. And so when you have this big slate of investment opportunities, how do you think about those investments in kind of an abstract manner? Is it that, oh, this is a great standalone opportunity? Like this is one of the more interesting ideas I've seen as a standalone. Do you think about it as it's something complementary to other pieces of the portfolio? How do you meld those things together, knowing that your objective is to deliver the plan return or the portfolio return or all of the asset classes together not being focused myopically on one single investment. So certainly it depends on the structure of the pool of assets that you're overseeing at the time. And, you know, in my career, I had the pension fund side of things that you had to be very concerned with an actuarial rate of return and trying to optimize to uh, exceed that actuarial rate of return while having liquidity to pay out benefits. And it was very different than being in an endowment where while we did have a 4% payout every year, you were really trying to take a much higher approach to greater returns to build that You want to grow the pool, right? You're not worried about missing that 4% for a year or two if you think you can claw it back in the long run. Right. If you forward to the role I currently have with the Vantage Point Investment Advisors, where we have 31 individual pools of assets and CITs, 
the challenge is even different than those first two in the fact that you're really trying to beat a benchmark for each one of those funds as well as the peer group averages. And so what may have been a challenge in one area, such as in this low interest rate return for those that are plan sponsors in charge of a pension fund and trying to exceed an actuarial rate where interest rates are today, is a really different challenge than the one I currently face in terms of just trying to beat benchmarks and peers within, say, a large cap equity universe or a international equity universe. So you mentioned the phrase or the acronym CIT. Maybe you could elucidate our listeners on what that is. It's a commingled investment trust. And basically, it is almost identical to a registered 40-act mutual fund with a reporting relationship that's slightly different, doesn't have the same oversight as a mutual fund from uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. But for all intents and purposes, it's really run almost identical to the mutual fund. So we used to run these funds as mutual funds and transition them to CITs. It gave us a little bit more flexibility. It reduced the amount of boards that we had to deal with. And I think ultimately that savings is hopefully passed on to our participants. So when you think about what you've learned over your 30-plus year career, how would you say your investment philosophy and objective has changed over that time? Is it similar? Were you born with this way of thinking about how to achieve these objectives? What have you learned along the way? Has the business changed? Walk us through how that's looked over the last three decades or so. All of that has changed. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> So if I think about what the investment management business looked like when I got into it back in 1984 versus what it looked like in 2000 versus what it looks like in 2019, the leaps of change is just continuing to accelerate. I think that I often joke with some of the younger members of my team that when I got into this business and had the ability to have a charter number for CFA that's about 1,000, life was a little easier. Mine has five digits, by the way. Yeah, see, there you go. I think at least (laughs) they're in six digits these days, so I feel like I'm still in the younger area. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're on the early end. So, But I think that everything has become much more competitive today. Not that it wasn't competitive then, but you have things today in terms of technology, the speed of information, more sophisticated investors that have broadened the marketplace, not just in the United States, but globally. And I just think that the search for undiscovered return stream is exhausting today. And not that it was easy then. We always thought it was hard then, but it's all relative. And so the amount of competition as evidenced by bid-ask spreads back in the 80s or 90s when you didn't have for fact-finding on an instantaneous basis. Yeah, right. They had to pick up a phone to figure out what what it was kind of trading around, not even at, around. Electronic messaging didn't exist. You didn't have the internet. I mean, the ability to actually gain an edge over other investment managers or analysts. You had that opportunity to do that today, whether it's RegFD or technology or just the way people operate. I think it's a lot more challenging. Having said that, I do think that also brings opportunities for new ideas and for some of these really smart guys in this business to identify different ways to glean a return that we may never have thought about before. So I think it goes back to having an open mind and to be open to innovation and understanding or appreciating that while sometimes we always think of everything reverting to the mean, sometimes it does change. And I think you have to accept that. I think of 
low PE value managers in the early 90s. We had one in uh, my role at Target Corporation who said, I'll never buy a stock that has a PE over 10 because historically that has really worked well. And this was a really extreme PE advocate and had a great record and managed a lot of money back in the 70s and 80s. They don't exist anymore because if you conform to that discipline religiously, you didn't have too many good performing stocks that had a PE under 10 in the late 90s. 2000s or today. So that's where it became more of a quintile or decile kind of ranking to say, okay, well, here's value in the market. But if you're very staunch in your views, you may just limit your universe to where there's nothing or you're left with a bunch of stocks. They have low multiples for a reason. Yeah. And you have to recognize that with the introduction of innovation and technology, comes changes within the marketplace and in the investor's perception. Well, some people argue that's a reason for higher multiples today is that there's the ease of accessing the data. You can just pull up a, some sort of data source like a Bloomberg, a fact set. It'll give you all of these metrics and you didn't have to go look at every 10K or 10Q out there just to pull out all the numbers and calculate it yourself and then try to compile all the data. So perhaps there is something about that too. And the ease of trading, bid offer spread, as you'd mentioned, Perhaps it is easier for people to get access to things, and, and therefore it should command a slightly lower premium. And I think that, look, we've been in a bull market now. We're going on our 11th year. And so things aren't going to grow to the sky. I don't think that things are going to fall anytime soon. But you're right. I think that as we've seen things improving and earnings quality has gotten better, probably contributes a lot to that higher multiple that we see in the markets today. And everything that you just mentioned probably puts a support level on that, right? Yeah. Well, you'd mentioned, too, quality of earnings, too. I think that's probably why inherently you've seen things like Europe trade at lower multiples than, say, the U.S. Some people argue it's innovation and these things. I don't completely buy that. There's still very innovative people across the globe. But when we talk about emerging markets, that's always the thing that overhangs. Well, can you trust the data set? Are these principles and standards? And so I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is just the uncertainty associated around things. I mean, look, we have good companies in the U.S. that have kind of had a bit of fraudulent behavior within their earnings or done something to manipulate them, not to accuse them of illegalities. But I think at the end of it, too, that's part of the whole improvement of the capital system, right, is to try to get this on where we're all on kind of equal playing grounds and then then we have to fight for the returns. Yeah, and when you get an equal playing ground, it skews to the narrow side, the differentiation between those that are really great investors and guys that are able to just grab beta and maybe hang on. And so it makes it harder for really good investors to distinguish themselves in an environment like this. Yeah, right? I'd like to look at some of those charts too where it shows dispersion across managers by like asset class or sector of the market. And inherently, the underlying volatility is what drives it. By definition, it has to from a mathematical perspective. But seeing that the differentiated returns, and so coming from a firm that we have a heavy investment bias into fixed income, that's a lot of our asset base. But we think of ourselves as global markets folks and can participate there. But looking at it, too, the amount of time that people look at managers, does it really matter to look at something like your government U.S. Treasury portfolio manager and try to find the best one out there? Or is that time better served at trying to find the best VC type manager or private equity, which has this high vol, high skewness of the payment at the end of the day? And so how do you think about that, too, as someone using external managers also running things internally? How do you think about the allocation of time and resources when it comes to making some of those decisions? Well, I think that when we are 
kind of laying out how we're going to look at our time. The majority of our time is really spent with those that we partner with in terms of sub-advisor relationships. And because that's a pretty big responsibility, we're putting out billions of dollars. And having been on both sides of that, I appreciate what a big responsibility it is and what a luxury it is to have the ability to help manage those assets. But I think that with the team that we've put into place, we have the luxury also of having folks to specialize in what they think about. And so we have certain individuals who are really focused on watching our underlying portfolios on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis on the screens. We have lifetime on our portfolios, even though they're managed by outside sub-advisors. We have the luxury of having guys that have either buy-side or sell-side experience in almost all those roles. They all have CFAs. They've all been in the situation that I referenced earlier where the trader comes in and tells you you messed up. And so they can empathize, I think, and really have a better appreciation for those underlying sub-advisors that are they really following the process and philosophy that we hired them to do. Having said that, because they're in certain asset categories, as you suggested, so many folks out there, and how on earth do you identify really great investment minds? We also have people that are really focused on looking at those underlying investment management firms that we don't hire right now, so doing manager research. And I think that one of the things that has been well-recognized by the investment management community with our organization is we have an open-door policy. So if you're in Washington, D.C., and you want to come talk to us, there's a pretty strong shot that you're going to have a, a meeting with us. And that's not true with everybody. Not everybody is willing to take most meetings. And we have a large enough team that we can take those meetings because my attitude is you never know where the next best idea or the next best manager is going to come from. And you might not have ever heard of these guys. And it's the same whether it is a stock, a strategy, a sub-advisor. You may find that when you are least expecting it, somebody really great comes through that door. So... Well, thanks for letting us in the door one day. <laughs> but that being said, how do you think about the viewpoint of kind of boxes? And what I mean by boxes is that does this strategy or this idea fit into this category? And is this a bond strategy? Is this an alternative strategy? Is this a large value, small growth? How do you think about what's colloquially being referred to as the style boxes versus allocating capital? Because at the end of the day, your job is I have this 100% allocation. What do I do with it? How do you think about the segmentation and ideas fit in? Is it a liquidity-driven type of idea? Is it volatility-driven? Is it the underlying investment, how it's categorized? Because there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And how do you think is, or at least what's your approach to doing it? So again, coming back to structure, in some ways, ours is much more well-defined than it would be for an endowment or a pension fund. And the fact that because we have 31 distinct funds, each one of them ultimately fits into a style box as defined by Morningstar. Now, we may not necessarily build those multi-managed portfolios exactly to the definition of Morningstar. We may use combinations of managers that don't typically fit in that style box, but the combination of two or three or four managers ultimately provides us with characteristics that will be right in the middle of what that peer median might look like. So for our organization, the concept of allocating assets is a little bit easier because we have an objective of trying to stay in those style boxes because our our participants, as most individuals are, it's an easy way for them to think about how to build portfolios if they want to use individual funds. 
I think that it gets a little bit more challenging when you think about multi-asset portfolios such as target date or target risk funds, which we also oversee. And so there, it's more a matter of thinking about how the glide path is going to be changing over one's career over a 50-year time span and taking into account not only volatility of the different asset categories and the liquidity, but how those will blend over a period of time to maximize a level of return for the risk you're taking. So I think there you do have a little bit more art involved in that as opposed to the predefined Morningstar boxes. Well, I like a few things you said there. Is One is that you're delivering the style, but each piece that builds that portfolio may not exactly mimic that style. And so what you're trying to use is your insight and the co-integration of how things move together to really pull that to look like this characteristic. But a lot of people, I think, are familiar with target date funds where, as you mentioned, the glide path, is, it's kind of an autopilot asset allocation for people as, as they age. What is a target risk fund and how do you think about that or how do you define that target risk fund? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I think that target risk funds really preceded target date funds by many, many years. So A lot of people think of the 60-40 portfolio, the 60% equity. And that's a perfect example. So I think initially when people were trying to help individuals build a portfolio and the individual says, well, I don't know anything about investments and I don't know how to combine all these different kinds of funds, they said, well... Do you have a low risk tolerance, a medium risk tolerance, a high risk tolerance? And they built funds that would represent different levels of risk along the spectrum, risk and return. And that's how ours were started prior to the target date funds being there. It was the primary go-to for individuals if they didn't want to buy individual funds. And so target risk will have a stated level of risk and return objectives and does not deviate throughout one's participation in that, whereas the target date fund, as long as you buy and hold it, you will have a gradual change in your stock bond allocation over time. Right. So when you think about the target risk, do you target a volatility? Is it some quantitative number? Like I want an annualized standard deviation of 7.4%. Is it that I want to have a range of outcomes? Does it think about drawdown? How do you try to frame that? Because we all agree that there is risk out there, but one person's risk isn't the same as another's, even their view of risk. So you talked about like something that's a liability stream. Well, drawdown may be important. Something that even your endowment world, you're trying to generate return. So volatility is there, but you're happy to take drawdowns on the way. So how do you guys think about that and try to explain that to your end investor? Yeah, so I think one of the important factors that you have to take into account is more options may not be better. So we tend to focus on four risk-based funds. And so you have all the way from a lower equity exposure environment where it's predominantly bonds with some stocks, all the way to an all equity risk. And obviously, the more risk you're taking, the different characteristics you have as you are trying to mimic combinations such as 60-40 or 40-60 stocks and bonds and provide them with kind of like the three bears, cold, medium, hot in terms of your temperatures of your porridge. And so that's what we've tried to do with these four target risk funds. And quite frankly, I read that target risk funds are actually making a big comeback in the markets today. And lots of advisors, I understand, are starting to use target risk funds more often 
whereas target date has always been in defined contribution plans, the go-to as a QDIA, and I think it will continue to do so. But again, people are finding other reasons to be able to use those target risk funds within someone's portfolio. QDIA, qualified? Default investment. Okay. I thought it was like what you get if you don't do your own allocation. That's exactly right. Uh, Trying to discern the acronym is a little (laughs) tough there. You mentioned you have 31 distinct funds. With regards to the evolution of those funds or new product development, how do you begin that path of generating new ideas and deciding that this could be a new fund for for the platform and ultimately the genesis of those ideas and how they're implemented? Yeah, so I think that's evolved over time within the organization where when I first arrived at ICMA Retirement Corporation, the Vantage Point Fund's represented probably nine or 10 basic funds that filled four or five style boxes on the equity side and two or three on the fixed income side. We had a stable value fund. We had at that time five target risk funds. I think that over the first couple of years I was there, we introduced target date funds, which increased that number of funds really quickly because you introduced that series all at once. And like the industry, these have all evolved over a period of time. And so today, when we think about new product development or new ideas, sometimes it is being developed as almost a building block to improve the outcomes for our target date and target risk funds. So sometimes we think about this not as building an individual fund for individual investment. Rather, it will be an area or an asset category that probably is not currently populated within that fund lineup. And we think we will be able to improve either the volatility quotient there or maybe increase the return there. And so examples of that over the last few years have been emerging markets, where we had historically used an ETF because Custody of certain emerging markets is a challenge. and A lot of jurisdictions of trade. <laughs> a lot, a lot. But ultimately, our legal team and finance team and operations group had the ability to kind of get that put into place so that we then developed an emerging markets equity fund and replaced that from the ETF, which we think is a superior alternative to generating alpha, possibly on the upside, but more importantly, having more of a defensive tilt for a very volatile asset category. Another one that we have done that for is high yield, where we used high yield ETFs as a a consideration for what we should be putting in there. And we thought about that. And we felt that, again, in high yield, it would be better to introduce a actively managed uh, strategy to be able to manage both the downside and be defensive as well as upside opportunity. So those are two examples of areas where in both of those examples, while they're open to individuals on the platform, what really drove that introduction was the ability to improve the outcomes for target date and target risk funds. Yeah. I mean, we've done that here with things like infrastructure debt and things where we think they have merits as a standalone, but more importantly, it's how they zig and zag with the other parts. And and so putting them in asset allocation products or turnkey solutions for clients, I think is important. And sometimes the product development people don't really understand that it wasn't designed simply to be, you should put all your money in this, or you need to allocate yourself. But it's more like how we think about it fitting the overall broader picture. And so I really appreciate that too, as as someone who works on product development, Sam here. (laughs) Um, But a question that I thought about there is that, how do you think about strategic asset allocation? You're talking about 
EM, the downside, and being able to protect that, not always wanting to have the beta of one or just having market exposure. Are there certain sectors or asset classes that you think don't belong in like the strategic asset allocation where you should always have some exposure and you think of them more as a tactical part of the market, like a tactical for a part of the cycle? Or do you think they always belong there? Most assets have merit. It's just how you fade them or go into them when they're depressed and think about it. Just be extremely more tactical. The jury's out whether you should be strategic, tactical, those things. I mean, that, that was the research in the 90s and early 2000s. So just wondering how you think about that today with the introduction of all these niche kind of ETFs and small, narrowly defined sectors and markets. Yeah, I bet you, Jeff, if we look, there's probably a lot of new products being developed every single day, and they all sound pretty great but a lot of them fail to meet expectations. And so I think that the way we think about it, or at least the way I think about it, is that I'm never going to know exactly in terms of timing when I should be in or out of a particular asset category. So I always think about it's time in the market, not timing the market that's really important. But having said that, we tend to put different strategies with ranges built around it. So that A, it allows for market movement, and so you're not constantly rebalancing. Which costs something. Which costs a lot. And then it also gives you the ability to, if things really seem like they are out of the norm, it gives you a little bit of flexibility on the margin to either add or lighten up on those particular asset categories. My uh, attitude about this is that there are periods of time when asset class is going to be out of favor, but they're in there for a reason. And think about treasuries, for instance. The 10-year treasury is a perfect example of something that over the last three years has been something that people have either hated or loved. And it just depends on when you right. talk about it. And nobody ever thought- And they've both been right, if you think about it, right? There's yeah. been enough volatility to say both have been right, uh -huh. and they can all be vindicated by one narrowly defined time period. Right. But if you were using that on more of a tactical basis- it's conceivable that you wouldn't have any of that exposure when you needed it the most. Mm -hmm. And so think about last year, 2018, I remember hearing Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan as rates are moving higher. J.P. Morgan said, well, the long-term direction for 10-year treasuries could be in excess of 5%. And futures were pricing in all these rate increases. And if you would listen to that and said, I have this on a tactile basis rather than as a kind of an insurance policy, which is the way I view treasuries as an insurance policy, a low correlation option to what your equity exposure is going to be. If you would have listened to that then, you probably wouldn't have any treasuries to enjoy that run that uh, got from, what, three and a quarter down to where we are today in the low twos. So I feel like once you've made the decision that there's merit to a strategy, you might have a range. But you want to always stay true to those asset classes if you felt that they were positive in the first place. So I'm not smart enough to figure out when to get in and out of these uh, completely. I mean, that's the biggest challenge, especially when you trade these markets all the time. And so I think it's with the innovation of technology and the ability to access data and to memorialize people's quotes, I feel like it's more critical of society is more critical of people who are willing to go out there and put their neck out and say something like that, too, where it's like, OK, we have a view this way. But we're not all in on that idea. It's like, okay, well, maybe that means we want to underweight our sensitivity to rates a bit. But knowing that 
None of us are clairvoyant. So I think that's part of the whole kind of tactical thing. It's a tactical move, not tactical ins and outs of asset classes, because that's a dangerous thing, especially when you get something right and you leave. It's very difficult to get back in. It's just like you had this big winner in your portfolio. It's very difficult to want to sell it just emotionally. You want to prove how smart you are every time you look at your portfolio. Look at that position that did so well. And it's the opposite. Let's say, look at that position that's done so poorly. And so I think that is, it's discipline and process. I think that's very important. Yeah, and if you have a quantitative framework in which to apply some of that emotion, I think it helps guide you directionally, but it keeps you within on the road still so you don't completely get off the exit and never find your way back on as you suggested just now. If we um, look back at your experience over the 30-plus years, if you're able to distill all of that career information, life experience, the investment experience that you've had, what type of advice would you give to the young investors today? Going anywhere from your, your eighth grade, uh, <laughs> you know, looking at the annual report for Boeing up to now, I mean, what – what could you tell people? This is what we call the TLDR now, the too long didn't read. Yeah. You know, can yeah. we get that one like, synopsis there, I think, is what Sam's trying to give us. And you can take as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately, so I have an older son who is thinking about getting in the financial services business. And I think that the advice I try to give him is the fact that it comes down to really hard work and you have to be a self-starter to really distinguish yourself in an area which is, as we've talked about, becoming increasingly more competitive. And so to me, being able to log the extra hours, being able to be somewhat open to new ideas, and really watching those that have a lot of experience to learn from them and try to, I'm a big believer of uh, standing on the shoulders of tall men. So in my career, I haven't had any problems stealing really great ideas from guys I thought that were really smart. And so I think that all those go into the learning process for somebody trying to break into this business today. Okay. I think that's really good advice. So I was going to go down on some markets tangents. I think we should just wrap it up there because I think that's great advice for people is it's old ethos. Work hard, learn from those around you, right? The whole idea of the wise man learns from the other people's mistakes and make sure that you're never just dismissive of ideas. I think that's the other thing is keep an open mind when looking at things. And there's nothing new under the sun, they say. But when you start to look at these asset classes and they look unique or different, the one set of advice I got early on was you always follow the dollars. What's the cash flow? What's it look like? Where does it come from? And then from there, we can talk about the merits of that cash flow coming through, what it looks like, when does it blow up and the likes. But I think it's core premise. Some of these basic techniques we learned is really how you apply yourself to these different investments and sectors of the market. And based on your career progression, you followed the advice. Yeah. <laughs> so far, you know, so far. <laughs> uh, hopefully that continues. So, Wayne, thanks for coming in today. Uh, we appreciate you visiting the LA office. So thanks for coming on the show. But before I let you leave, Sam wants to introduce you to his favorite part of the show. And that part is Sherman Says... Wayne, since it's your first go around, I'm going to give you the rules here. And I basically what it is, I'll give you a one-term prompt and hopefully receive a top-of-mind response from you. And I alternate between Jeff Sherman and yourself. So the first one I'm going to put out there is number of cuts in 2019. What do you mean? Oh, Fed cuts. Fed cuts. Two. 
Same question to you. Yeah, I can't disagree. I think two. I really think it's going to be spaced out, though. I think it's one, try to wait, wait as long as they can, and we probably get to two. But I think it's two and a little bit of perhaps missing that objective. All right. The next one goes to Sherman with quantitative easing. (laughs) (laughs) No longer an exceptional policy. It's more status quo. If we're going to cut rates when the economy is doing well in the U.S., why not do QE when the economy is good? So. Be careful to think it's an exceptional policy. And Wayne, the next one for you is negative interest rate policy. Yeah, I would say that it's certainly a a bad path to go down. And I have a feeling that we're going to look back in history with the use exclusively of monetary policy that has driven us to this period. Guys 15 years from now are going to say, what were they thinking? Right. I did say, and I'll take a total tangent here on that, is that when Mr. Powell had his testimony to Congress a couple weeks back, and we're here recording in July, and when he did that testimony, they were talking about the tools, and he was talking about quantitative easy. There's going to be no shortage of treasuries to buy. But he did slip that in at the end and say, it's not just up to monetary policy. There is a fiscal component. And I think that is the tragedy that's in the Eurozone now, is that they're so staunch about their debt-to-GDP ratios. I mean, we laugh at them with what we're running. They're trying to keep it around two and acting like that's disciplined. It's all deficits at the end of the day. But the idea that fiscal policy can't be an exception or aberration for a short period of time, that we're just going to be masters of the universe, we're going to jam this policy down, and economic equivalence is going to be okay. Because what's minus 300 basis points? Well, it's the same thing as QE. I disagree from an investor or even just a commercial banking standpoint. So. Yeah, I saw you park up there. So Yeah, I watched this, and monetary policy is great as long as you have a complement of a fiscal discipline involved. And that combination can be really powerful, but excluding one for the other often is doomed to failure. Yeah, and we've seen that historically, that when you focus only on one, although I don't think there's as many bouts of just pure monetary policy that we've done since the financial crisis, that usually it turns out pretty dangerous in the long run. So Hopefully one doesn't become the checkbook for the other permanently as well with this whole MMT discussion, right? Who knows, in 15 years, maybe they'll look back and say, how could it be not as negative as we are today? Since we like to define terms for some of our listeners, can you tell them what a checkbook is? (laughs) (laughs) It's right there next to my A-track, you know? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've got on a long uh, winded tangent here, so. All right. So let's bring it back to Sherman with Boris Johnson. Wow. Yeah. Point of reference today, we're recording on the date that he was- uh, He just was elected the prime minister of the UK today, or someone said the United Kingston today was on a, <laughs> on a tweet from someone somewhat famous. Brexit. Well, we'll see. You just mentioned Boris Johnson. We'll see if he really can uh, meet expectations that he has promised that he'll successfully uh, take that to another level. I still think it's going to take longer than you think. Yeah. I think there was something out that, you know, one of those online gambling plays like Gladbrokes or whatever that that put odds on things. It's a five to one odds that he is the shortest uh, prime minister ever following the heels of Theresa May. So (laughs) if you want to bet against it, uh, supposedly there's a market for that. There's always a market for something, I guess. The next one is internet privacy or privacy since we're talking uh, Britain here. It's a fallacy. (laughs) Fed independence. On the note of that, Fed. <laughs> on the back of that. So Fed independence, I think, I'm probably in the camp that they 
are reasonably independent. I don't believe that, like some believe, the president has undue influence on the Fed. I think they're thoughtful guys, and I think they're just trying to do the job that they've been appointed to do. I would completely agree with that. And they're never going to be completely independent because, as you said, they've got to work with the fiscal policy. They need to work with the politicians. So to say they're truly independent is very difficult, but I think they're doing their best they can. Final one for each of you, starting with Sherman, summertime. And the living's easy. Favorite pastime? Well, you got to be at the beach. If you're doing summertime, <laughs> you got to be at the beach. All right. And that wraps it up for uh, this portion of the Sherman Says. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Wayne. It was a pleasure. Again, Wayne Wicker is the SVP Chief Investment Officer for the Vantage Point Investment Advisors for IMCARC. I think I nailed that again. ICMA. Oh, see, I, I, I <laughs> see. got too excited. ICMARC. I always wanted to- You were so close. Well, I know. Jim. I got excited thinking I did it. But thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate having you. It was my pleasure. It was really a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks again. And so for those of you listening to, remember, you can look at the podcast on our DoubleLine website. We have it on iTunes, SoundCloud. You can email us for feedback, shermanshow at doubleline.com. You can follow us on Twitter at shermanshowpod. And you can also check out some of our latest podcasts that have been posted on the YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash doublelinecapital. Again, tune in soon for more CIOs on The Sherman Show here with our CIO series. Thanks again, Wayne. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.